Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our next-gen pastor, Myron Jellison, for this week's message. Well, hey, welcome. I'm excited that you're here with us, and uh, we've been studying this singular day in history for the last three weeks, and we're going to spend one more week on this day in history. And you might be thinking, awesome, I've only missed three weeks. Well, actually, you've missed 48 weeks. <laughs> we've been going through the entire book of Mark. We're in the 14th chapter. And so for the last three weeks, we've been hanging on this one day and unpacking this one day. And I want to spend one more week kind of closing out this day in history. And so we'll be in Mark 14. If you want to get there, Mark 14 will be in chapter chapter 14, verses 66 through 72 is where we'll be. So get your Bibles out if you want to do that. Get your mobile device or whatever device and, and get there for the scripture. So what's been happening this, this day, and we've been coming the last three weeks, is called Passover. And so this day is actually when the Passover feast, the Passover meal, would actually be eaten. Now, quick quick update on what Passover is. Passover was this celebration. It was this remembrance of how God delivered his people way back when from captivity and, and, and enslavement from Egypt. And what happened is, is he showed up, the angel of death was gonna come and was gonna kill all firstborns unless you sacrificed a lamb that met the requirements and, and put its blood on the doorframe and then this angel of death would pass over. So all the Jewish, or all, all the nation of Israel, they did this. And so when the angel of death came, it passed over and didn't kill their firstborns and they lived. And then Pharaoh said, get the heck out. And that was the final straw that got, allowed the nation of Israel to be released. And so the nation of Israel, God's people said, hey, we're gonna celebrate every single year. We're gonna set aside this time, this this day and we're going to redo uh, this meal and sacrifice a lamb that meets the requirements and, and have this celebration and have this meal. And so this is the day, it started out, this is the day when they would have this meal and, and this Passover festival would start. And, and, and Jesus and his disciples ate this meal up in this upper room and it's called the Last Supper. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're in Jerusalem and there's tons of people in Jerusalem because again, it's Passover festival. And so every good Jewish family would have been descending on the city and it's just buzzing. And so they don't really have a place to eat. The, the city's packed and the disciples are like, Jesus, like, where do you want us to like go and prepare this meal so we can eat the Passover meal? And Jesus gives them some instructions. And so they go and they find it just as Jesus does. And they're in this upper room. And this is where Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples. And he breaks the bread and he says, this, this is my body. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance, like eat this. And then he takes the cup afterwards and says, this, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out for you. And, and, and so this is like the symbolism of like the old covenant is gone. The, the, the agreement between God and man that used to be is now being replaced, completely fulfilled with me and my body will be broken and crucified. My blood will be spilled and poured out. <clears throat> and, and this is the new covenant. The new agreement between God and man is through me. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. And he's representing this in this last supper where he breaks the bread and, and, and he gives the wine and says, this is my body and this is my blood. And that's the last supper. And so Jesus just has this Passover meal, the one final time with his disciples before he's gonna be crucified and go back into heaven. 
And then after that dinner, that last supper, they leave and they, they walk out and they go across the Kidron Valley. So they're in the city of Jerusalem. They go outside the gates. They kind of go across this valley called the Kidron Valley. And they go up on this little mount. It's called the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says something profound to his followers. He says in Mark 14, so uh, verse 27. Let's back up to verse 27 before we get to verse 66. Go back to 27. And it says this at the Mount of Olives after they just had the last supper. And Jesus said, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter, God love the man. He's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, no, even if everyone else runs and falls away, I will never fall away. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter puffs up even more and he insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then the, there's, a, there's a roar from the other disciples, like, yeah, we're with Peter. Like, and all the others said the same, yeah, we're gonna die with you. Like, if they take you, they gotta take us. They gotta kill me before they'll kill you. And Jesus is like, guys, you don't get it. Like, you just don't get it. And so they're at the Mount of Olives, and then there's a garden right nearby called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows that his time is about to come to an end, that he's about to be handed over and crucified. And he just wants to go pray. He wants to go get some time with his heavenly father. And so he grabs Peter, James, and John, which he's done this. If you've been with us through the journey of Mark, you, you've seen how he'll grab Peter, James, and John, three of his closest. And he takes them aside and says, hey, come and pray with me. Like, I just need some prayer. I'm, I'm under a lot of distress and anxiety and fear and worry about what's about to happen. And just come and pray with me. And so Jesus is praying and he kind of goes off a little bit farther by himself and says, hey, stay watch. And Jesus goes off and he's praying to his, he's praying to father, Abba, his dad. He's praying to the heavenly father. And, and he's under such duress and stress and anxiety and fear. And he's at this emotional zenith of his human flesh. And, and the capillaries in his sweat glands actually burst and he's sweating blood. And science is proving that this can actually happen when you are under that incredible amount of stress and duress and pressure and fear and anxiety and worry. He's having this, this, this physical reaction to all the emotion and, that he's feeling. And he comes back to his best buds who he needed to be there for him and pray for him. And they're sleeping. He's like, guys, what are you doing? I need you to be here for me. You guys fell asleep. And he goes back and starts praying again. He comes back, he finds him sleeping a second time. And he's like, man, like when I needed you the most, you fell asleep and you blew it and you've failed. And Jesus, in this moment, under this duress and fear and worry and anxiety and stress, Jesus, he didn't wanna die for you. He didn't want to die for you. And, and if you're like me, you, if you grew up in church and you heard all like through your whole entire life, Jesus came to earth to die for you on your behalf. Okay, that's what his, that's what his role was. That, was. that was his job. That was his assignment. And that's what I've been told my whole life. But in this moment, when we read this passage a few weeks ago, he didn't want to die for you. He asked God, Abba, the Father, if there is another way, please take this cup from me. I don't want to go through with it the way that it's, it's going to happen, that you're telling me it's going to happen. I don't want to go through with it. I don't want to die that way. If there's another way, remove it from me. Jesus didn't want to die for you. But in the end, Jesus says, okay, 
But if this is the only way, I'll do it. Your will, not mine. But he didn't want to, but he will willingly because there's no other option. And so after this prayer and this encounter that Jesus has with his heavenly father, he he goes back and he finds Peter, James, and John asleep for a third time. And he says, enough's enough. My hour has come. And so then they, they, they're in the garden and, uh, and then Judas shows up. And Judas comes up and he gives him the, the, the kiss of betrayal. He gives him a hug and he gives him a kiss on the cheek. And he had plotted with the religious elite and the elders in the Sanhedrin who wanted to arrest him. And, and, and Judas is like, hey, let's do it quietly, privately out here, not in the city gate, not, in, not inside the city walls where it's bustling with people. Let's do it out here across the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane. I will kiss, I will give a kiss to the man that you want to arrest. And Judas goes and kisses him and then soldiers show up and they're about to arrest um, they're about to arrest Jesus. And when the soldier comes up to arrest Jesus, it says a disciple pulled out a sword and went to chop off. I'm, I'm assuming it was the head. Like he was going for the head. Like just, you know, decapitate him. But then the matrix scene where you're like, wah, 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 slow motion and just barely got his ear. And Jesus is like, put that sword away, picks up the ear, puts it back on the man and heals this man's ear who had it just chopped off. And I don't know about you, but if I'm that soldier and I'm like, I was about to rest you. And then my ear got chopped off and you put it back on and healed it. I'm like, I'm walking away, guys, you arrest him. Like, I think he's probably God. He just healed me. You arrest him. That blood's going to be on your hands. But anyhow, they still, they arrest him. They arrest him and they start to take him away. And in this moment, all the disciples who were there watching this ran because they realized, uh uh-oh, If we can't fight back, if we can't actually have the political revolution that we've been desiring this whole entire time and do it by force, and Jesus is saying, no, put your swords down. This is what I'm going, they're gonna take me. This is what I've been saying all along. They're afraid for their own life of thinking, you know what, if we associate with Jesus and we can't fight and defend ourselves, they're just gonna handcuff us and crucify us too. And I'm sure fear and uncertainty of what their future looked like, they all ran, they all fled, and they all hid behind rocks and trees, and they scattered, and they took Jesus. They handcuffed him, or they somehow secured him, and they're going to walk him back across the Kidron Valley, back through the city gates, and into the, uh, the, court, the, high, the, court, the court of the high priest, where they're going to try him, interrogate him, and question him, and ultimately try to find something to pin on him so they can crucify him, and kill him, and get rid of him. Could you imagine what the disciples are thinking and feeling in this moment when they see their leader, who they followed for three years, handcuffed and, and, and marched back in with torches across the Kidron Valley in the dead of night back through the city gate? Can you imagine what they're feeling? I think about Peter. Peter's the one who pulled out the sword and chopped off the dude's ear. Another gospel tells us, Mark doesn't get tell us that, but another gospel tells us that it was Peter who pulled out the sword and tried to kill this dude, take his head off. And Peter's been the one so puffed up. Even if they, I, I gotta die, if they gotta take you, they gotta take me. I'll never fall away from you. I'll never run. I'll never betray you. And in this moment, he did. He ran. He's afraid. He's fearful. Can you imagine what he's going through? But the crazy thing about Peter is he was one of the few, there was only two, to actually go into the city gates and to 
see what's going to happen, to be there in the court, the high priest court, where this trial's going on. And Peter's probably got his hood up. He's kind of following it a distance. He, it says that he follows the caravan or the, you know, the, the soldiers and the torches, you know, ex- escorting Jesus. He kind of follows in the distance. I'm sure he's got his hood up. He's trying to blend in. He's trying not to get caught. He's trying, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just like, I just got to try to figure it out. Like, I just want to kind of see for myself and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm risking my own life. I'm fearful. I'm scared. So I'm just going to disguise myself and just kind of stay at a distance. But I'm I'm going to go and he's going to follow them through the city gates back into Jerusalem into the high priest courtyard. And you know what's crazy about where they led Jesus? The gate closest to the Garden of Gethsemane, the gate closest to the Mount of Olives is this east gate, which is nicknamed or called the Sheep Gate. It's the closest gate to the temple. And if you know Passover is when they bring the lambs or you buy a lamb that would be sacrificed at the temple for Passover to celebrate, to remember. And so there's this gate, it's called the sheep gate at the east gate where all of the sacrificial lambs would be brought to, checked in and caged and held for the ceremonial sacrifice. It's just ironic that Jesus on this night is gonna be led through that gate because he is the final Passover lamb. John the Baptist, way back when, in in the beginning of the book of Mark, said, look, there is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that lamb. He is going to be that sacrificial lamb that once and for all will be sacrificed for payment for your and I sin. And a new covenant is made between God and humanity through Jesus. It's ironic. And these sheep at that gate would go under uh, inspection and scrutiny and, and evaluation to make sure they met the requirements of being spotless and they would be a good enough lamb to then be uh, sacrificed. And Jesus went through that gate and is at the high priest courtyard being interrogated and scrutinized and inspected, trying to find something on him that would stick so they can crucify him. But nothing sticks on him. He hasn't violated any law or any command. He hasn't broken anything. They have nothing to actually arrest him or actually crucify him except one thing. They ask him, he says, hey, are you the son of the most high God? Or so basically, are you God? And he says, I am. And I'm like, well, that's blasphemy. So we can use that against him. And we use the blasphemy against him. And that is the reason that we will crucify him. And so this is all happening in that courtyard. They're asking and scrutinizing him and inspecting him and interrogating him. And Peter is there by a fire, by some columns. He's probably got his hood up. He's probably got his uh, disguise. He's just trying to fit in and just trying to see what's going on for him. So he doesn't know what he's doing there. He doesn't know what he's feeling exactly, I'm sure, overwhelmed with emotion and fear. And so I want to pick up in Mark 14, 66. And it says this, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what, you, understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, same servant girl, she said again to those standing around, she's now directing the attention of the crowd and some peer pressure. And she says, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. And after a little while, those that were standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. And then he began to call down curses like, shut up. He swore to them, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. 
And as soon as that happened, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and he wept. And this isn't like just a cry. This is like a deep, sorrowful weeping and mourning of regret and shame of what he had just done, disowning and denouncing and denying his Savior, his Messiah, his Lord, his leader three times when he vowed that he would never do that. And he's hurt and he blew it. He failed of epic proportion and he's broken. And of all the people that Peter should have feared in that courtyard, because there was power and political leaders and the Sanhedrin and the religious elite, those that he should have feared, this servant girl was not one of them. But the questions that she asked rocked him, I'm sure. And they might rock us too. And I want to look at the three questions that Jesus was, or uh, that Peter was asked, or I want to look at the three things that Peter was tried for that night. And there's going to be three things I think we are tried for if we are followers of Jesus. And number one, the first question he was asked by the servant girls, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. She's basically saying, hey, you were with him. You are following him. You were one of his followers. So the first trial that we will be tried as Christians is what leader do you follow? Who do you follow? Where is your allegiance? Where is your values? Where is your morality? Where is your philosophy? Where is your ideology? Where is it being informed by? And who is your leader that you are following and pledging your faithfulness and your allegiance to? Will your life be marked by one that is following Jesus? Peter's was. They said, hey, you were with him. Like, you're not like us. You, you, you're, you're him. You're one of his followers. Your life is identified and marked by that, by the leader and his teachings and his values and his ideologies and his morals. So who do you follow? What leader do you follow? And will your life be marked by that? Because let's be honest for a second. As a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, not just a church goer, not just someone playing religion, but if you are a Jesus follower, a Christian, a Christ follower, your life will be marked. You will live counterculturally. The way in which you conduct your marriages and you sacrifice and you serve and you fight because you realize that the commitment and the covenant of marriage is unbreakable and divorce is not an option. And we conduct our marriages in a way in which is different than the rest of the world. We handle our finances in a way in which is different than the rest of the world. We're generous first and, and we realize that God, you've given me everything that I have and you're just asking me to be a good steward. He's given you the life and he birthed you into the family, into this country with the freedoms that you have. He's given you everything that you have. He's asking you to just be a good steward and manage it well. Your life will be marked. Your life will be different than the world around you. You realize that the kids that he's given you, they're his kids. He's just loaned them to you for a while. I got two kids, almost a third kid coming. I realized those kids are not mine. They're not me and Emily's. They're his. And he's trusting us to steward it and raise them in the ways of him well. So who do you follow? Where is your allegiance and will people identify and mark you by how you live? And, and will they know who your leader is because your life is different? Pete was 
Peter was tried with, you were with that Nazarene. You're one of his followers. And so for us today, is he your leader? And does your life reflect that? The second question that Peter is asked is, this fellow is one of them. This fellow is one of them. And, and the little servant girl now turns the peers on him, gets the crowd looking at him and going, <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think he is. You try, like, and so the question that he was tried with is, who do you associate with? You are one of them. Who do you associate with? And for us, who do you associate with? Who do people associate you to? What group of people? Well, this left side or this right side or this party or that party or this movement or that movement or this ideology and this ideology, this side of the vaccine, this side of the vaccine, this side of this side. Like who do people associate you with? They associated Peter with Jesus followers. You're one of them. You're one of them. Because of who his leader was, who he was marked by, there was an association two of who he was. And so who do you hang out with? Who are the friends that you have? Where are the places that you hang out? How do you conduct your business? How do you conduct your everyday life? How do you love? How do you serve? How does the group of people that you are associated with live out their life? Will we be marked by, yeah, you're one of them that loves and serves and sacrifices and gives in a way in which is nothing else like, 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 like no one else in the community or the world's doing. Who are you associated with? Who will people associate you with? With them? That's what they know you as first on this group, on this side, on the right, on the left? Or will they associate you like they did with Peter? You're one of them, one of Jesus's followers, a disciple. Who do you associate with and who do other people associate you with? with. And the final question that Peter was tried with and will be tried with is, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. Now, how did they know that he was a Galilean? The gospel of Matthew, he kind of clears it up and he says, they know he's a Galilean by the way that he speaks. You're one of them hick dudes from the, from the, you know, from the backwoods of Galilee. And they knew his dialect. And so the way we'll be tried, just like Peter was tried in number three is, how do you speak? How do you speak? And Chris Dew last week talked about how we got to love our enemies. And he talked about we live in the age of outrage and we just want to spew hatred. We want to conform to the language and the patterns of this world and just be negative and derogatory and demeaning and belittling and just rip and tear each other down with our words. And our words are incredibly powerful. And so how do we speak? What will mark us by our language, by the words that we use, the tone, the inflection, the compassion, the love, the gentleness, the kindness, the grace in our language? I know he's talking about dialect. I know they recognize Peter because of his dialect, his accent. But you know what's crazy about accents? Like if I would go to the deep South and I lived there for a long enough period of time, or if I went to New York and lived there for a long enough period of time, I would probably pick up on their dialect or their accent. You are influenced to speak in a way in which you are surrounded by. And so how will you speak? And I think there's a spiritual dialect that we can pick up, that we will speak with gentleness and love and kindness and encouragement. 
and not belittling and demeaning and derogatory and tearing each other apart, but bringing unity and love by how we talk. There are verbal distinctions in our dialect from geographical regions, but I think there can be a spiritual distinctive of we speak and we talk different than the world around us. And another danger I see in, in, in how you speak is some people grew up in church. Like I grew up in church and I could talk the talk. I knew the Bible. I knew the phrasings. I knew ev- not everything. I knew a lot and I could talk a really good game. And based on the way that I talked, you would say, yeah, you're definitely our Christ. You're definitely Christian. Definitely. You talk it, you know it. But there could be a disconnect where you can know and you can talk the talk but your life and your actions do not match what you are saying or claiming you believe. And so we can't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. How you speak and how you act have to match. And if we're honest right now in our culture, there is a cancel culture mentality of where there's pressure for us to conform with our speech. Really, do you you believe that, you really believe that a woman shouldn't be able to decide whether or not she can get an abortion. You know, I don't really know what you're talking about. And we just disengage because there's a pressure to conform and a pressure we feel that, and a fear that we will be canceled or ridiculed and outcast and, and, and berated with negativity and even overlooked for occupational, you know, opportunity because we spoke out against someone else's, you know, wants or desires or, or ideologies. There's a fear of losing our job if we just bow down and comply. And there's a pressure to conform I get it, but how do we speak? Who do they associate us with? Where is our allegiance to our leader? Are three things that we will be tried for in our culture, just like Peter was tried for on this night. And if I'm, and if I'm honest and I'm looking at Peter, man, like the book of Mark, if you remember the book of Mark is written from Peter's account. So Peter kind of shared this account and Mark wrote this down. And so if I was ever given the opportunity or asked to write an autobiography of myself, which I don't think will ever happen, but if I was, there would be some nights, if I'm honest, some some weekends, some months, some years that I would not include. Yeah, I would be vulnerable and I would be open and I would share some of my struggles and failures, but there'd be some things I'd want to leave out. And if I'm Pete, I'm thinking, I don't know if I want this night remembered for people to read. So why would Pete share this and give his account of what happened this night? And I think it's because Peter wants to help us with our past. Peter wants us to be, help us with what we're dealing with right now and that we can find forgiveness and we can find freedom. You see, there's an ending to this story that makes all of this possible. And I wanna go back up to Mark 14 real quick where Jesus said, you will all fall away just as he told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, he knew they were all gonna run. He knew they were all gonna hide. He knew they were all gonna disown him or, or, or betray him in that way and not be there for him like they said they were. He knew that, he knew they would fail. But he says, hey, after I come back from the grave, I'm gonna go into Galilee and I'm gonna meet with you. I'm gonna go ahead of you and I'm gonna meet you. I'm gonna be there for you, even when you have your greatest failure, even when you didn't measure up, even though you blew it, I will still meet with you. 
Spoiler alert, Jesus does come back from the grave. I know I'm ruining it for you. We'll get there. Let's, let's go ahead into Mark 16. Let's go a few chapters ahead. I know we'll get there and unpack it more, but this is the ending of the story I want us to see. And so Jesus, he goes to the cross, he is crucified and he is buried and he's put in a tomb. And there were three women who are gonna go to the tomb to anoint his body because they didn't get to because of a Sabbath day rest. They weren't allowed to do it. So they had to go the next day and um, they're gonna go anoint his body and prepare his body for burial. And they go to do this and when they get there, this is what happens in Mark 6, 16. Don't be alarmed. An angel says to these women who show up to the tomb to anoint his body, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, whom was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's exactly what Jesus just told him a few days earlier, I'm going to go into Galilee ahead of you. And the angel's now telling these ladies, yes, he's gone into Galilee. Go and tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter. And so the ladies probably go and, and they go to the disciples and say, hey guys, listen, the angel told us he's in Galilee. Like he went ahead of you, go to Galilee. And I'm sure all 10 of them got up because Judas had already committed suicide for his betrayal. So the 10 of them probably got up and went and Peter's probably sitting there going, I'm going to sit this one out. You guys, you guys don't know what happened that night around the fire with that servant girl. Guys, you don't know. You weren't there. You don't know how I, I betrayed him. You don't get it. And the ladies look at Peter, I'm sure, and go, Pete, <laughs> you're mentioned by name. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. He wants to see you. He wants to meet with you. He wants you to know that he loves you and he has something incredible for you. And so I don't know if Peter would have got up and went if Peter wasn't mentioned by name because of the shame and the guilt and the epic failure that he experienced that night. And so they get up and the disciples, they go, and Peter, they go, and they go to the Galilee and they're at the Sea of Galilee. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to go back to what they've always known up until meeting Jesus, where they were fishermen. So they're just fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They're about 100 yards off the shore from this beach. And Jesus shows up on the beach while they're out there fishing. And Jesus kind of disguises himself so they don't really know who it is and they aren't catching any fish. And then Jesus, who is this stranger to them, says, throw your net on the other side. They listen to this stranger. I don't know why. They throw their net on the other side. And guess what? Fool. They can't even pull the net back into the boat. And in this moment, the disciples realize who's on the beach. It all comes back to him, deja vu. How he met them three years ago is how he's meeting them again right now on this day, on the beach, on the Sea of Galilee while they're fishing. And I wanna go to the book of John 21 to look at the end of this story. John 21, verse seven, he says, once they threw the net over and caught so many fish, verse seven, then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard them say this, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped out of the boat into the water and he's Michael Phelps in it for that gold medal, baby. He's just swimming as fast as he can. I don't know why he put his outer garment on. He's like putting on a trash bag. He's gonna drown. That's got a lot of drag in the water. I'd have left it off. But he's swimming. He's like, I'm not 
going to miss it this time. I, I'm not going to wait for you guys to row in and deal with this fish. I'm going to go see my Savior. I'm not going to blow it again. And so Peter swims ashore, and the other disciples, they row it ashore, and they're bringing their fish in, and they roll up onto the beach, and there's a bed of hot coals, fire on the beach. And it's like an episode of Survivor Breaks Out. You guys disown me? Here's your punishment. Lay down. <laughs> or now we're going to have a trial. Like, you got to walk across this. And whoever can walk across this now can, you know, be with me in heaven. No, that's not what he's doing. You know what he's doing with these hot coals? He's cooking fish and he's cooking bread. He's making them breakfast. What a God. What a Lord. What a Savior. Even though y'all just fled, y'all just ran. Peter, you denounced me three times, failed me when I needed you the most. Here's breakfast. I love you. I'm here for you. And so they eat this meal on the beach. And in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to him to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to Peter, follow me, follow me. I think after dinner, he said, Pete, come on, let's go walk down the beach real quick. I got three questions for you. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Second question, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. All right, Pete, third question, do you love me? Yes, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Pete's hurt because he's questioning his allegiance. He's questioning his love and devotion to him. And it only makes sense because he denounced him three times. Jesus is redeeming Peter three times and saying, Pete, I know that what you did three times. I know, I know, and I know. And I redeem you and I redeem you and I redeem you for how you denounced me and failed me three times. And he's like, Pete, I had to come here. I had to mention you by name. I had to walk with you on this beach. And I had to ask you these three questions because if we didn't deal with this, this would have haunted you for the rest of your life. You never would have forgave yourself. The shame and the guilt that you experienced on that night would have haunted you for the rest of your life. So I'm here to let you know that I know, that I know, that I know, and we're good. And I love you. And I redeem you for all of them. And I'm, I'm letting you deal with your shame and your guilt. I'm letting you find true forgiveness and freedom from that, that you are not marked by that anymore. It is gone. We've dealt with it. We're good. And I have a plan and a purpose and a future for you. Pete, you're going to be a leader. You're going to be someone who's going to take this movement to the next level. You're going to be one of the cornerstones or you're going to be one of the pillars, sorry, one of the pillars of the church, a prominent figure and teacher and preacher to bring the good news. And if we didn't deal with this, every time you would have stood up to preach, 
or teach, Pete. There'd been a voice in the back of your head saying, man, like I hope someone from that night around the fire doesn't recognize me and comes up and pulls the rug right from underneath me because of what I've done. Pete, we're good and we've dealt with it. I dealt with it on the cross just a day ago, a couple days ago. I paid for it, Pete. I got you. I redeem you. I love you. Now go, be free from that. And don't let it haunt you because if we're honest, sometimes there's a voice in the back of our head. Every time we try to worship or raise our hands and respond with Jesus, we're like, nope. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember where those hands were last year? You remember what you've done and, and how many people you've hurt? And you want to stand here and worship God? There's that voice that wants to talk you out of it because you haven't dealt with it. Every time you think that, man, I probably need to lead a life group, but then there's that voice of saying, no, like, do you know who you were in 2008, nine and 10? Do you know? You, you're unqualified to lead a life group. Every time you want to get involved or maybe serving kids or youth ministry, you're like, man, like, you don't know who I was. You don't know what I've done. I would say Jesus wants to meet you like he met Pete and said, I paid for it. I've, I've taken care of it. I know and we're good. I forgive you. I want to set you free so it doesn't haunt you and you can live out the call and the purpose that I have for your life. You see, Peter felt like a failure and it would have haunted him for the rest of his life if Jesus didn't meet him this way. And he called him by name and said, I want to meet with you. He wants to do the same thing for you. He's calling you by name. I want to meet with you. I want to redeem you. I want to buy you back. I want to deal with the pain and the hurt and the failures and the shame and the guilt and set you free from that so it doesn't haunt you the rest of your life. Because the reality is, is you did fail. Pete, you failed. We have failed. But in spite of your failures, in spite of you running and hiding and betraying and denying, in spite of that, I went to the cross anyway to pay for it all. I went ahead of you into Galilee to meet with you, to redeem you, to let you know that I know and I have a plan and I have a purpose for you. You see, in the kingdom of God, there is, failure is not a person. Failure is an event that we experience. And because of that event of failure that we experience and we've had over and over and over, that is why the cross is necessary. That's why Jesus had to go and die in your place on your behalf to sacrifice so that we could then be in relationship with God. Failure is not a person. Failure is an event. And that event needed a cross. You see, the gospel message isn't one to make you feel good or to teach you how to be a better person. The whole entire Bible isn't a bunch of words to, to a self-help manual to make you a better person. The whole entire Bible is words of saying how you failed, how you're not a good person, how you'll never measure up. You can never do it on your own and that you need a savior. You don't need a second chance. You don't need a redo. You need a savior. And Jesus didn't want to die for you. He didn't. But he realized that there was no other way. And so willingly he said, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. I don't want to, but I will, because I know there's no other way. And he loves you that much. He doesn't want to see you stuck in chains and in shackles, in pain and in shame and in guilt. He wants to set you free from all of that. And he calls you by name like he did Peter. 
and he wants to give you a new life. And so there's forgiveness and freedom found when three things happen. First, you accept the truth about you. Pete, accept the truth about you. You did it. You denied me three times, even though you said you wouldn't. You ran. I get it. Accept the truth about you. You can't go back and undo it. Accept that that's who you were. Not a good person. But that's okay. Because none of us are good people. We all fall short. And so you have to accept the truth about you. That you can't do this on your own, Pete. You can't do this on your own. And Peter tried to do it on his own. But then after Jesus went to the cross and came back, Pete's like, I'm humbling myself. I will never do this on my own. I need you. I need a savior. And Peter gets it. Peter didn't get it up to this point, but Peter now gets it. And Peter will go be a superstar teacher, leader, and difference maker and influencer on behalf of the gospel in Jesus. So you have to accept the truth about you so you can find forgiveness and you can find true freedom. The second thing you have to accept is the truth about God that he loves you in spite of you running and fleeing and denying and justifying and manipulating and doing all kinds of horrific things and terrible things and failing like we have failed. In spite of all that, while we were still running and scattering and denying, he went to the cross on our behalf. That's the truth about God. That's the truth about Jesus. That's the truth about the savior. The man that we've been studying for the last 48 weeks, that's the truth about him. And then you have to accept the truth about the cross that you should have been hanging there, that that was your payment that he paid on your behalf to set you free, to give you the forgiveness. And so you could have freedom from that and it won't haunt you. And you might be thinking, Myron, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the, the lengths of the things that I have done. And you're right, I don't know. And I would say, but you don't know who Jesus is. And you don't know what he's done on your behalf on that cross. And you haven't fully accepted it and ushered it in to your life because he wants to forgive. And the old is gone, the new has come, the pain and the shame and the guilt you can be set free from. And he'll call you like he called Peter, come and follow me. I know, I know what you did. I know what you did. I know what you did, but I paid for it. That's grace. That's mercy. That's radical Love And the final thing I want us to take with us today is that if you will follow Jesus, he will take your mess and he'll make it your message. I'm not proud of what I've done. I'm not proud of the mistakes and the failures and the way that I've denied him and gone through the motions and just checked the boxes and played church and played religion. I'm not proud of all that, but I will now take the mess of my past and it will not have a, a grip on me. It doesn't have power over me. I will not live in fear anymore of people finding out who I used to be. I will take my mess and I will let it be my message. And I'll, and I'll say, this is grace. This is mercy. This is God's love for me. This is the work that he's done in my life. And your story, your mess, now your message can be your greatest tool to reach people with the message of the salvation of Jesus and the truth of who he is. Take your mess and let it be your message. And there is so much fear plaguing us, just like Peter was plagued with so much fear, uncertainty. What is real? What is true? What are you calling me to? What am I supposed to do? And when we live in our fear and we live in the fear of our past and the shame and our guilt, that's when the biggest regrets happen in our life. And Jesus wants to set you free from your fear. He didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of truth and of power. And you can invite that in and be free and forgiven 
and not be plagued by fear of the past and who you were and all of your failures, but you can be made new. And I don't know where you are today, but I'm gonna ask you, do you know Jesus, who he is and what he's done? And if not, invite him in to be Lord and the Savior, redeemer of your life, forgiver of your sin, and setting you free from all the pain, the shame, and the guilt that you may be carrying. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much that you went to the cross on our behalf. God, I thank you that you love us so much and that you didn't leave us where we were, but you went there for us to buy us back, to redeem us in spite of us running and denying and fleeing and and dishonoring you. You loved us and you still went to the cross on our behalf. And God, I pray that we would be marked with an allegiance to you. When the world tries us or questions us, we say, yeah, our life is different. We're set apart, a city on a hill. We're salt and we're light to the world. And we follow you, our leader, by who we associate with. They will know that we're one of your disciples and one of your followers. And by the way that we speak, it would be noticeable. And we'd speak love and encouragement and positivity. And we would allow our mess to become our message. And we would speak boldly about it in a way in which could reach people with the message of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray you would inspire us and empower us and encourage us to live that out and draw us to you and call us to be everything you've created us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.